You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are continuing our way through the book of Revelation. And as you are probably aware, if you've been with us over these last few months, I have been trying to spend a lot of time making sure that we have this book set in its proper context. It is a book that is either neglected or abused, so we've spent a lot of time trying to give you a framework for understanding, and our main theme is obviously from the title, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ. We've seen him as Lord of the Church, we've seen him as the Eternal Creator, we've seen him as the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, we've seen him as the Kinsman Redeemer, the one who will take back possession of the earth, we've seen him as the Lamb that was slain last week, the Passover Lamb, the one who purchased the right of redemption 2,000 years ago, and there's much more to come so far. If you remember last week, we were in the throne room of God, we saw that scroll in his hand, and we saw the Lamb of God stand up and go and take the scroll. Now if you turn to Revelation 6 chapter 1, we will move on now, and we are getting into the bit that I know a lot of people have been waiting for, but you have to have context for this. So this is the only verse we're actually going to do in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1, and then I'm going to take you on a little bit of a diversion, and hopefully it all will be made clear. So it says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. And with this, we are moving into a very different period of history when the Lamb breaks the first seal. As I've been saying, this moves us into this final era of history, and I want to talk about that a little bit with you. Let me remind you of our chapter 1 study, the outline that is given to us for the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And to summarize that for you, the things he had seen... That was Revelation chapter 1. That was that amazing picture of the glorified Lord with the burning eyes and the brass feet and the sword coming out of his mouth that we studied in depth. The things which are was Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This was the letters to the seven churches, historically. That's the church age. And then it says, and the things which will take place after these things. So this is a new period of time, and that roughly corresponds to Revelation chapter 6 to 19. Revelation chapter 6 to 19. So the period, the book, we're just the chapter we are just getting into. And this is what is often referred to as the tribulation period, the day of the Lord, the end time. There's many different names, which is why I want to spend a little bit of time looking at it with you. We need to understand what this future period of history is. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm actually going to take an excursion with you. And we are going to look at the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week. Now, you may have heard that this period of time we're talking about is the 70th week of Daniel. However, I'm very aware that we've mentioned that quite a few times, but we've maybe not gone into it in a lot of depth, so you know what we are referring to when we talk about the 70th week of Daniel. There's no way to sugarcoat it. It's quite a complex piece of text, but we are going to do our best. I can just promise you, if you stay with me, it is worth it. You know, it's one of these areas where if you do the work, you get the rewards in the text, and that is what we're going to do today. It's one of, probably the most, for me, one of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Bible. It amazes and confounds unbelievers, and it enriches and edifies believers. It shows us in many ways that God's hand is in charge of history, and all of history is moving towards his desired end. So we want to try and place this in context of Daniel, 
and that will hopefully see by the end of this study, you'll see why we're doing this as we're studying the book of Revelation. So let me talk about the context with you. The prophet Daniel, he lived in the 6th century BC. And if you are familiar with the book of Daniel, you may remember the time, we call it the Babylonian captivity. The kingdom of Judah, because of their sin, was taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. And they came to Judah and they took many of them to slaves back to Babylon. And among these slaves were Daniel, the young man Daniel, and his friends. And these are the characters you read about in the book of Daniel. So that is the period of history. Now for context, just in world history, the 6th century BC, this is the same time that the Acropolis was being built in Athens. We were about to see the, the, the heyday of Greek philosophy and thought. Cyrus the Great also took over from Babylon, founded the Persian Empire in the 6th century. This is the same time that the religion of Zoroastrianism was founded by Zoroastra in Persia. And you find these little symbols all over the place today. This is the same time that Confucius lived and he started what is known as Confucianism today. This is the same time that Buddha lived, and Jain, the Jainism was founded, and all these, a lot of these new, new Age, sort of Eastern spiritualities. This was all at the same sort of time, 6th century BC. This was also the time that the Temple of Diana at Ephesus was first being constructed, that would later get rebuilt and again many times and grow in stature. This was also the time that Pythagoras lived, started all of those famous Pythagoras theorems that we all roughly know the name of and none of us not really understand. Yeah. <laughs> but that is what it is. He was the Greek mathematician. Also, you may be very familiar with Aesop's fables. Some of the famous ones, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, the boy that cried wolf, you heard that expression, that's one of Aesop's fables. The, the tortoise and the hare, you know, slow and steady wins the race, that's one of Aesop's fables. They were written in the 6th century BC originally, and you still buy them as children's books today. So that is your historical context. This was a time actually when there was a lot going on in the world. A lot of foundations, worldviews, and different philosophies were being put across the world. Yet, I share this with you to just remind you that whilst all these things that still have a massive influence on the world today were just in their heyday, people were, men were starting them, God's plan was already set. It was already written down, it was already prophesied, it was already planned, it was already in motion at this time. And I find that very encouraging, especially as many people get confused by these things in these other religions. I would just say, put them to one side, they are clearly not what God was intending. We are going to see what God was intending in this study today. So that is the context. Now the book of Daniel, if you've read it, is quite an unusual book. It's really a series of prophetic histories, visions that Daniel was given about the unfolding program for the nations, the unfolding program that God had for the Messiah, and also for the nation of Israel in particular. So we are looking in Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible now, go to Daniel 9. We will be there pretty much for the remainder of our study. And we will probably take two weeks to do this 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Let me just read this so we can set our context. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 
So let me just fill you in on what that means. They'd been taken captive to Babylon, and Daniel was, he'd just seen the Babylonian Empire fall to the Persian Empire that happened while he was there, and he was troubled by this, and he, what did he do when he was troubled? He went to the Word of God, and he did a study in the prophet Jeremiah, and there he learned that their captivity in Babylon, or Persia now, was only to last for 70 years. It was a 70-year captivity, and by this time, that 70 years was almost up. He'd almost been there for 70 years, so he wanted to know what was going to happen next. There's a few passages in Jeremiah that speak of this time. I'll just quickly read you a couple for context. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 says, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 29:10. Thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So the prophecy was that Israel would be cap- taken captive, but they would be restored back to the land of Israel. And this is the narrative that we, much of the Old Testament is dealing with. So what did Daniel do? If you look at Daniel 9, verse 3, it says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. And this is another wonderful lesson here. In these difficult, trying, and very unknown circumstances for the prophet Daniel, he did two things, two very simple things. He studied the word of God, and he prayed. Now, you've all heard pastors give you that, haven't I? Study the word of God, prayer. And often you think it's kind of a way that we don't want to get involved in any deeper way. Study the Word of God and pray. It's actually the most biblical advice we can do, and it is actually where you'll probably find your most effective solutions. Study the Word of God and pray. This is what Daniel did. And then the whole of Daniel chapter 9 is basically Daniel's prayer, and it's a wonderful prayer of confession. He confesses his own sins. He confesses the sins of his nations. He acknowledges that God was righteous and just in bringing them into captivity because they deserted him. He puts himself in the place of the nation. And as he's building to a climax, verse 19, I believe, it says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. The intensity of Daniel's prayer is building and building and building. And then right at the end of Daniel chapter 9, you find this little bit where he is interrupted in that prayer by the angel Gabriel who announces, I have come, I have been sent forth to give you insight and to give you understanding into what is going to happen next. So that is the context for this most amazing prophecy. So now let's read Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 together. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So this is the beginning, and this verse really acts as an overview. It is a summary of the entire prophecy. Let me unpack it a little bit for you. So first, we are given a specific, definite time period for this prophecy. And just stay with me as we go through all of this, because this is one of those prophecies where, you know, it's not like a Nostradamus prophecy. These, they can't, you can't have a million different vague fulfillments for some of these things. These are very definite, specific prophecies here and we actually have a time period for the coming of the Messiah. It says 70 weeks. Now the word weeks is actually the word for sevens, it's Shavuah, so it's 77s that this is saying and it was the word for a unit of seven. 
So even in modern Hebrew today, Shavuot is the word for week because it's a unit of seven days, right? We all understand that. However, the Hebrews also had, they would use the same word referring to a week of years. So not a week of days, they would have a week of years. And this was based on the sabbatical laws in Leviticus 25. They were supposed to every seven years to let the land rest for one year. And this was actually the reason that they were in captivity for 70 years because for 70 years they ignored that command to let the the land rest, so the land was owed 70 years, so God put them in Babylon for 70 years. So all of this is connected in in many ways. Now, to try and figure out whether this is talking about weeks of days or weeks of years, because the word's the same, you have to obviously look at the context. Context will make it very clear. It's very clear in this passage too, this is not referring to weeks of days because that would be pretty much under two years and not enough time for all those things to happen. So this is referring to weeks of years, because that is the context of the whole captivity, 70 weeks of years. So 70 times 7 in the context of weeks of years is 490 years. Okay, So we have been given a period of 490 years. And just we could go into these in a lot more depth, but I'm trying to simplify a lot of the the complex areas that, that are involved in this. In the Bible, and also in the ancient Near East, in many nations, particularly Babylon, they used a 360-day year at this time. It wasn't a 365 and a quarter day like us. It was a 360-day year, and they had various ways that they would account for differences every few years. But in the Bible, you see it often uh, split up as a 360-day year. So that, that's what we're working with here, 490 years. So that's our time period. So then what does it say back in the prophecy? So 70 weeks, so 490 years have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So now we have this focused upon a specific group of people. So this prophecy is referring to Daniel's people, which of course were the Jewish people, and the holy city of course was Jerusalem. So this is a focused, a prophecy that is about Jews and Jerusalem. You may have heard, you've probably heard it from our pulpit, this is why we we pay attention to what is going on in the land of Israel. This is why you cannot really study and understand the Bible unless you have that clear distinction between Israel, the church, and God's prophetic plan. Now, you can go too far on these things, of course, but this prophecy indicates that you need to be very aware of these things. This is another reason why the book of Revelation is much neglected, because if you don't have this, you'll have trouble throughout the rest of the book. But it's a prophecy regarding Daniel and his people. And then we get given six objectives. So we have a period, a time period given, a people given, and now we have six things that are going to happen by the end of this 490 years. And we can read them all together there. The first one is to finish transgression. To finish the transgression, actually. It's an unusual way it's phrased. It's it's the definite article there. It's the transgression in the Hebrew. And a lot of people think that this is referring to one specific transgression that the Jewish people made. Obviously, rejection of God being the main one, but also the unforgivable sin, kind of, that we read about in the New Testament was the rejection of the Messiah. And as you go through the prophecies regarding Israel, we seem to see implied that the second coming of Jesus, this event we will study in Revelation chapter 19, will not happen until this sin is acknowledged, rejected, and confessed and repented of, coinciding with the salvation of Israel at this time. So all of these things are linked. But that will be done by the end of this period. 
The second thing, to make an end of sin. And that's kind of an an open-ended phrase. People differ as to whether that's talking about the completion of all sin in that sense. But to be honest, frankly, I believe this is the context of this prophecy is your people and your holy city. This is referring to removing sin from Israel, particularly, which seems to be the situation in the kingdom. If you read the New Covenant, the New Covenant is where we get all of our spiritual blessings from, but it was a covenant made with Israel. It says this, it's an unusual portion that we don't often focus on. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There will be no need at that time for Israel to tell their neighbor about the Messiah. They will all know the Lord at this time. So I believe this is what that's really referring to there. The third one, to make atonement for iniquity. Now, again, the language here, but this clearly points to the Messiah's death, making atonement for iniquity, is speaking of the actual final death for sin that the Passover lamb would do. And, of course, this is the actual act that makes the first two events possible in the first place. So they are all connected to to the Messiah's death. Verse 4, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, literally, it actually says to bring in the age of righteousness there. This is another way of describing the kingdom age, the messianic kingdom, which we will see at the end of the book of Revelation. To seal up, number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. The word seal up has the idea of bringing to completion. So basically, this is a massive statement. What it is saying is that all the prophecies that Daniel would have been aware of basically the Old Testament prophecies that speak of this coming period of trouble, the kingdom, they will all be fulfilled by the end of this time period. We will, they will see their completion. There will be nothing left at this time to be fulfilled. And verse 6, to anoint the most holy place. And this is an unusual phrase. People differ about what this means. But in the context, it does seem to imply that there will be a temple in the millennial kingdom. We read about this in the book of Ezekiel. There's eight whole chapters dedicated to it. And this is some way, in some way connected to the reign of Christ. I won't really speculate any more about that. But we have these very specific detailed objectives here. So that's the overview of the prophecy. As you can understand there, there's a lot. There's a lot of time, 490 years, the people of Israel and Jerusalem, and then these six objectives. So let's look at verse 25, please, and we'll get a little more specific. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, stay with me. We get a specific starting point here for the 490 years that we've talked about. And we also see another unusual element. The author divides this 490-year period into three unequal portions. You can see it there. He says there'll be seven weeks. That's weeks of years, remember. Then 62, put them together, that's 69. So we still have one more week. So there's a period of 69 weeks and then one week at the end. And it's sort of split up like that. Most people assume that the first seven weeks was to do with the period and how long it took to actually rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then you have 62 more weeks until the Messiah comes. So 69 weeks until the Messiah comes. And then there's one final week 
that we'll deal with next time. So from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the clock starts. So there are a few decrees. We have to be careful here. Ancient decrees that refer to rebuilding the temple. Cyrus made one, King Cyrus, Darius the Great made another decree. But there was a specific decree that was given that would allow for the rebuilding of the city, the walls, not the temple in that respect, obviously included, but the city and the walls specifically. And you find this in Nehemiah chapter 2. I'll read it to you. It's given by King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah chapter 2. That is King Artaxerxes. We know quite a lot about this fellow. It says, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, and it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And this is very useful. This is how we understand this. You notice all these little dates you get in the Bible that we read over because they don't mean much to us, but they they help us place this uh, in history. It says, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. That's Nehemiah. Verse 5, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. And the king granted them his request, and said, the hand of God be upon you. This is summarizing the story there for you, but if you've studied the book of Nehemiah, you'll know it's about going back and rebuilding. That's, it's a massive portion of the Bible. Now also notice that it says there in the first verse of, of Nehemiah 2, that he went to the king, and he took his wine that was before him, and he took it up and he gave it to the king. Now, if you know the book of Nehemiah, the character, this prophet Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer to the Persian king. Now, a cupbearer to a king in, in the ancient world is a very high-powered position. You were, in fact, responsible for not only testing food and wine, but for ordering the house, the service, and for serving the king directly. It was a great privilege. You would be constantly in the presence of the king. He was obviously a very trusted official. Now, fascinatingly, if you've ever been to the British Museum, you can go there, and we have... This is a, a drinking bowl that they used to use. They didn't always use cups, they used drinking bowls. This is the cup of Artaxerxes I. And if you can't see it on this picture, but around the edge there is an inscription all the way around, and it says, Artaxerxes, the great king, son of Xerxes, son of Darius the Great. It goes on to describe this as his drinking vessel. So there's a very high possibility that Nehemiah would have actually held that bowl there and been the one that gave that to the king to drink out of. I find that quite fascinating. Also, all of those characters on the inscription around that bowl are mentioned in Ezra chapter 4. Artaxerxes, Xerxes, and Darius the Great. And this just reminds us again that the Bible is history. Um, The Bible is just history. It is weaved throughout our world. Everything in some way is related back to something we find in the Bible. All of these people mentioned. Now, just for again, for context there, this is Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes. Now, if you If you watch movies, you're probably familiar with this period of history. He was the Persian king that tried to conquer Greece. At this time, he was known for having a group of soldiers that were known as the Immortals, and they were supposedly invincibles. You'll find many of them on panels throughout the Persian period. If you've seen the movies, they they made them look like this, and that was based on a few face masks that they did actually find that were quite similar to these sorts of things. These were the Immortals. They were considered to be uh, undefeatable. And if you know the story, this was the Spartans, the 300 Spartans that held them up at the Hell's Point. That's actually quite historical. That is what happened. They did hold them up, and eventually the Persian army did get through. But that's the story, how it goes. So this is the period that we're dealing with. Nehemiah is linked to this with his son. He is now serving the son of this king who did all this in the Persian Empire. 
So I find that, again, quite fascinating. But because of all these dates that we know about the Persian Empire, the kings, and the years of his reign, we can give a fairly accurate starting point for this prophecy. The decree by Artaxerxes, most people assume, was given on March the 5th in 444 BC. So that's our starting point. That's the starting point of the 490 years. Now, I'll put it on the screen for you so you can understand. 490 years starting on March the 4th, 444 BC. And we're also given the termination point in the prophecy. Do you remember it says, until Messiah the Prince? So starting from the decree, until Messiah the Prince. They're the two things that bracket that. That is the prophecy. Until those two events, there will be 490 years. That is the termination of the 69 weeks, until Messiah the Prince. So let me try and summarize that for you. Daniel was given this prophecy, and if you turn, you can kind of see I've worked it out on the screen there for you. 69 weeks is the 483 years. 483 years is 173,880 days. So what this is basically saying is that from March the 4th, 444 BC, there will be 173,880 days, and by that time, the Messiah needs to be here. So this is, again, another reason why the identification of Jesus as the Messiah is so crucial. Because March 29th, AD 33, something very specific happened on that day. If you're not aware, that is the exact day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the king. That is the exact day. So you have 173,880 days from that decree until Jesus was living in Jerusalem. And on this very special day, it's called the Triumphal Entry. We celebrate it at many times during the church. It's an unusual event because it's the only day that he actually allows, encourages, and actually arranges that he would be the one proclaimed as king, even though he was going to be crucified a few days later. But he had this. You've, oh, let me read the story to you, actually. You find it in Luke 19. He's heading towards the Mount of Olives. And he says to his disciples, go into that nearby village. You're going to find a donkey tied up there. I want you to bring it to me. And he says, if anyone asks you what you're doing, he just, just says, say the Lord has need of it. That's it. Kind of unusual command there. And then verse 37, it says, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. And they were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then some of the Pharisees complained, said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. As in, you're letting them proclaim you as king right now. That's blasphemy. Why are you letting them do this? The Pharisees did not figure this out. And he said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And it then says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade, surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So he's basically saying, Jerusalem's going to fall under judgment very soon because you did not recognize the timetable of the Messiah. And it could be not definite, but it's probably most likely referring to these prophecies that Daniel had given at this time. And let's look at verse 26, back in Daniel 9 now, and we'll see. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be wars, desolations are determined. 
So don't miss what's happened here. We've just had a prophecy given in the 6th century BC that predicts to the day the timing when Jesus presented himself to king. This forever settles any argument about who is the Messiah. There is no other candidate in all of human history, and there can never be because the time is past that can fulfill this. Jesus is the king. That is basically, if you want to take anything away from this prophecy, Jesus is the king. It was arranged. It was proven. It is done. Buddha rose at this time, Jainism, Confucianism, all these things were going on. Hinduism was big at this time, the Greek temples were going up at this time, and all along at this time, God's prophecies were being fulfilled. His Messiah was being predicted, and two years, 400 years later, he came, fulfilled this prophecy to the day. That is it. Jesus is Lord, he is King. This is why in Revelation we're studying about the coming King, the only one who has the right, the only one who could fulfill these prophecies. There is no other contender. That requires each of us to ask ourselves some quite uncomfortable questions at some points, and we must do that as we go forward. Then, let's read this verse, then after. So this indicates we've had the 69 weeks now. Okay, remember, it's a prophecy of 70 weeks. 69 of them have now been fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. There's still one more week. But now it seems to imply there's a little something that happens in between. It says after the 62 weeks, so after that period, something's going to happen. It says the Messiah will be cut off. This implies quite strongly that there is a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week. You can't really get away from that. This is just what the text says. After the 69 weeks and the 70th week hasn't started yet, we'll see that start in verse 27 of Daniel next week. But it says the Messiah will be cut off, he will be killed, he will be executed. So not only in this prophecy do we see an amazing prophecy to the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we also now have a prediction of his death a few days later. Remember, 6th century BC we're talking about here, long before Christ ever ever lived. But this is a fulfilment of many other prophecies. Isaiah 53... It says that he was cut off, speaking of the Messiah again, he was cut off, the exact same word, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Amazing prophecy that the Messiah was basically going to be killed, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his nation. And here we have Daniel saying that after the 69 weeks, Messiah is going to be cut off, he's going to be killed. This is quite impressive. Remember, it was the Roman Empire that had him killed. Daniel's living in the era of the Persian Empire. There's no way that a Pers- someone living in the Persian Empire could organise history to make sure that the Roman Empire killed him exactly the right time after his triumphal entry. This had to be dev- dev- devised by the Lord, basically. You see God's hand on history. Things are moving according to his plan, and they always will. It says, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now stay with me, you need to be careful here. Who is this prince that it's talking about? We've already seen Messiah the prince, just so you know, in Hebrew the prince, the word prince refers to a mighty ruler, not necessarily like the son of the king like we would have in, in our royal families. It just means a mighty leader, a mighty ruler. So we had Messiah the prince, and now we have a different prince mentioned. It says the people of the prince who is to come. So this is a coming prince of another type, another time period. It's, it's interesting. We will talk about him more next week. But Daniel introduces him like people are already going to be aware of him. Readers of his book will already be aware of who this coming prince is. And that is because in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, he gives a detailed history of nations and empires that will rise in this world. Again, another amazing prophecy that details 
the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greece and the Roman empires in order. And then it gives a prophecy speaking that in some way that last empire will still be with us in the final days and out of that empire will, raise, will rise someone called the Little Horn, someone called the Prince, and he will be, we refer to him as the Antichrist. And he will be a political and military ruler, and he will be someone who speaks great words, someone who is attractive, who is lovely, and that the world is drawn to him. This is the Prince who is to come. He is there basically trying to imitate. He is all that Christ is not. He is the complete antithesis of Christ. He puts himself in place of Christ. This will come up a lot throughout the book of Revelation. That's why we're laying this context here. I know this is, it's a lot of information I'm giving you here, but as we go through Revelation, you're going to see it all come and make sense for you. So, it says that the people of this coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we know that this coming prince came from the Roman Empire, so his people are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, when did Roman Empire destroy Jerusalem and the temple. This happened in 70 AD. So now 40 years after the Messiah, the crucifixion of the Messiah, the Roman Empire under Titus and Vespasian, they sieged Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and the sanctuary and they destroyed the temple and not one stone was left upon another. This is what happened. They fulfilled that prophecy again. So it was after the triumphal entry, it was after the crucifixion, and 40 years later, the city and the sanctuary was destroyed. This is what it's referring to here. And this is, again, in accord with many other prophecies in the Bible. I'll leave that there, we'll come back to that. And it says, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So the end of the temple and the city will be with a flood. That's a, a symbolic expression often used of military invasions. The, the idea is armies just come and flood, flood the land. If you've seen the movies, you can understand you know, everything coming down the hills. That's the idea. And that is exactly what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. So let me sum up some of this for you. These are the events that happened after the 69 weeks, but before the final 70th week. The crucifixion, the Messiah was cut off, and the city was destroyed. Now again, just let me remind you, to prophesy someone's death 500 years earlier is very impressive. But to also prophesy that after his death, in exact chronological order, the, one of the major cities of the world and their most holy building will also be destroyed by, in fact, and even tell you the nationality of the army that is going to do it, is equally impressive, considering the Roman Empire was barely a a blip in the world at this time. So these are very impressive prophecies that we are talking about here. But let me just deal with you a little bit with this gap that we see here. It indicates that there is a gap before the 69, in between the 69th and the 70th week. And I'm going on about this for a little bit because it's a contested point. As we get back into the book of Revelation, we are going to see often time periods given and these time periods are often split into two different periods, each being three and a half years. Certain things are going to happen in the first three and a half years, other things are going to happen in the final three and a half years. Put through that three and a half makes seven years. So the whole structure of the book of Revelation is structured in this period of seven years. So this obviously makes people think the book of Revelation is connected to Daniel's prophecy 
it is the final 70th week of Daniel. It is those final seven years. And by the end of those seven years, remember, everything was to be complete. So therefore, when these things start to happen, there is not long left. But that is why I'm setting this context for you here. However, many people object that this idea of having a gap, because we know, that we know there was a 40-year gap at least from the execution to the destruction of the temple, but we would now say that gap has now been extended, so we're in the 2000th year pretty much of that gap. That gap is still going on in between these two years. The 70th week has not started yet. And many people come back, if you, if you read anything in this area, you'll know that there is an objection. Many people will say, well, that is clearly a dispensational idea that dispensationalists in the 19th century came up with. There's no gap. Everything was fulfilled back in the first century. And they say, uh, like they would say, the rapture was a modern invention by the dispensationalists too. Both of those things are false. If you go to the year 202 AD, the church father Hippolytus, the oldest Christian commentary that we have that exists in the world today is a commentary on the, pro on the book of Daniel by this man named Hippolytus, written in 202 AD. And guess what? He also taught a gap in between the 69th and the 70th week. This is just one selective quote. There are many more. And you can see by the language, he's talking about the prophecies of Daniel here. For after 62 weeks was fulfilled, and after the Christ has come, and the gospel had been preached in every place, time having been spun out, the end remains one week away. So he's referring to the 70th week, that being the end. That is what I'm referring to as the book of Revelation. It is the 70th week of Daniel. That is what we're looking at here. And we're going to see that come up over and over again as we work our way through the book of Revelation. So let's sum up what we have here in this first period of Daniel's 70th week. So now if, you've, if you look at the prophecy, you might notice there's one more verse that I haven't touched on tonight. Verse 27 of Daniel 9. And that is the verse that talks about the 70th week. I couldn't fit all of that in uh, into one study. It's just too much. So we'll do that as, as a part two. So we have a prophecy written in the 6th century BC that provides the exact day that the Messiah would present himself to the nation, fulfilling many other prophecies in the process. This ancient prophecy then also predicts that this same person who did that would also be executed. And in the Bible, you know, it, gives, it tells you much about his execution. He was to be pierced his hands and his feet would be pierced and so on, he would be scourged and so on. These are all things written in the Bible. And when this was complete, it also prophesied that his city would be destroyed. And this is something that also happened by the Romans in 70 AD. So these are major, major prophecies. These are not vague things. These are all very, very specific. And I would say we can see these fulfilled in history. We can see them, there's no doubt about it. Historically, they're on record. And thus, we really can be in no doubt that Jesus is who he said he is. We can be in no doubt that the Bible is the word of God. And that comes with some serious consequences because now we're going to start looking at this final 70th week. By the end of this week, everything's going to be completed. And then, well, the books will be opened in judgment and there are consequences, but the kingdom is about to start. That is, that is what the book of Revelation is about. That is our prophetic context. Now, I wanted to go through that with you 
because we're going to see these seven years coming up over and over and over again. We're going to have to look at some other prophecies too before we continue, but that is your introduction to Daniel's 70th weeks. I'm sure you'll agree it is one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible, and we will finish off the 70th week next week. We'll talk more about the Antichrist and various different figures that will pop up. So, everyone still with me? Everyone okay with that? Yeah? Okay, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.